0: This morning, um, man, it sounded amazing. Um, we were singing Anya's Day. Um, that's just like one of my favorite songs, and the sound that just filled this room was uh, amazing. And I was thinking about what Chuck said you know, just being at this conference this weekend and talking to different ministers um, just about their ministry and, and what's going on in, in their lives and how beautiful it is to do that. And I thought about the people in this room that I've gotten to do that with. Um, some of you that I've sat down and and we've shared prayers and we've talked about very personal histories. Something that has deeply impacted your life. Maybe how you came to Christ or something that happened in your family. Uh, I've wrestled with some of you over, over faith issues, struggling with belief in God, struggling with overcoming anger and hate. Um, Man, I, I experienced that together. And um, I'm going to be in Matthew 9 this morning, and I would invite you to be in the text with me as we kind of go through this. Uh, but I want to share a little bit of why this is personal to me, um, and I'm really excited about why this is also personal to the author. Uh, Matthew chooses to record his own conversion, uh, his own calling in, in this story. And so this is something deeply personal to Matthew. When he presents this he 's talking about this is how I came to Christ. This is my journey, right When I was um, uh, really young, um, I loved playing pool uh, and um, uh, tamara 's older brother and i were we were really really close friends and we 've got a bunch of a couple of pool sticks and we played uh, in north Austin where we lived we 'd go to the pool halls and we'd play pool, but when we went to, to um, Uh, the AIM program in Lubbock, and we're studying the Bible, Uh, there was an old red barn um, pool hall behind where we lived called Suds and Grubs. And we'd go there and shoot pool and talk to people about Christ. And, And that was... That was just uh, an exciting thing for us. And the truth is, when we were doing this, this ministry, it was, it was amazing how many people were in that place because they were suffering through divorce, they were suffering through depression, they were going through hard times, the counseling that took place. I remember in just a period of a couple of months, five people were baptized into Christ because of what we were doing here, right? Well, one of my teachers here um, um, pulled me aside and, and I'll never forget where we were standing, what he said to me. And he said, you need to put that Satan stick away. I was referring to my pool cue. <laughs> you need to put that Satan stick away and get serious about studying the Bible. And I was so offended. You know, I was like, do you really think I'm going there to shoot pool? Brian Winger can tell you I can't shoot pool. Okay? He beats me every time we play. Some, my goal this year is to beat him. Um, but it wasn't the goal of what we were doing, but they were ju- they judged us that way as though, man, this is what you're doing. You're just not taking this seriously. And um, another one of my teachers, Rex Boyles, pulled me aside later and he said, I want you to, don't make it public. Don't boast, but don't stop going. I want you to continue what you're doing because I know where your heart is. And And... That meant so much to me that he recognized where my heart was. It's like, are we supposed to lock up our faith in, in the halls of, you know, this is a lot of what Lance's class was about this morning, and, and the halls of privilege and, and scholarship. Are we are we going to actually take this out somewhere into a ministry that's real? Is this going to reflect in what we're doing in people's lives? Does this really does this really impact life outside of here, you know? Um, that is what Jesus is accused of in this story. And I'm, I hate the illustration because I don't in any way mean to compare myself to Jesus. But it's personal to me because he shared this story with me at that time. He went right here. And I'm just going to read through the text. It says this, as Jesus went on from there, he, he, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, now keep in mind, this is the author of the book writing this, okay? He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came out and ate with him and his disciples. Now I thought it was funny that this version, this is not an NIV, put the word sinners in quotes. How many of your versions have the word sinners in quotes? Okay, about half of you have the word sinners in quotes. I thought that was very odd that they did that. As though, I mean, obviously in the Greek they don't have quotes. And so they chose to put that there as though they're trying to convey the message. No, they're just perceived as sinners. This is the perception. I don't think that this is what Matthew is writing at all. I think he's writing this. He was eating at the home of tax collectors and sinners. Okay, that's what we are. That's what we were. That's This is us, man. This isn't how we're perceived. This is who we are. Um, we are sinners. And he came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You are partying. Man, we are, we have devoted our lives to studying God's word. We fast and devote ourselves to memorization and careful study, the linguistics, everything. And you have come and you're partying with sinners. And how do you call yourself a rabbi? How are we to take you seriously? The text goes on and says this. On hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." He was called a friend of the sinful. In Luke 7, it says, The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, here's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. This is how Jesus was perceived. A drunkard, a glutton, and somebody who hung out with sinners. Not to be taken seriously at all. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. I'm going to come back to that verse later because I thought that was really interesting. But um, in another place, Jesus says this. He says, what am I going to compare this generation to? What are you like? You're like children in the marketplace that that say, hey, I'm I'm playing a, a, a worship song. Why aren't you dancing? Well, I'm playing a dirge now. Why aren't you crying? And as though we're just marching to the beat of tradition and routine. That nothing is coming from inside anymore. Nothing is relevant to what's actually going on in my life. And I felt that way at times at church. Isn't it it that way sometimes? And I love our worship. But sometimes you're singing a song of worship and somebody looks over Man, why aren't you dancing? Why aren't you clapping? Why aren't you show more joy? Man, because we're singing a happy song, you want me to transform myself into a happy person. And the next song is going to be like about weeping and fasting and like now all of a sudden I've got to become this, right? Um, Do do I have to do this song and dance? Do I have to march to your beat? And Jesus says this. This is what religion is doing. It's just telling you, man, this is when you're going to fast. This is what you. In fact, get this. How many fasts are prescribed in the Bible at all? Just one. Did you know that? In the Old Testament, only one. The fast of Yom Kippur is the only fast that was given in the Old Testament. It said, this is when you will fast. By the time Zechariah is written, there were at least five fasts that the people did annually. It reflects in the book of Zechariah. But by the time we get to Jesus we we understand this not only from scripture but also from rabbinic sources that they fasted twice a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays they fasted twice a week to show this is how religious we are this is how devout we are and they had become so mechanical in everything that they were doing and so Jesus says this and this is how he chooses to respond no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do men pour new wine into old wine skins. If they do, the wine the skins will burst, the wine will run out and the wine skins will be ruined. Now, they pour new wine into new wine skins. And both are preserved. Now, that's a, it's a strange parable. I, I love this one in particular because it causes you to really focus and say, what are you saying? What is going on with this parable? Well, first of all, this is a wineskin. You probably don't want to drink something that came out of that. But this is how they would um, preserve and culture wine. is You would take the skin of a sheep, ox, camel, or goat... It would be tanned, the hair would be cut close, turned inside out, and all the openings save one are closed with cords. And of course, you, you would use this because of the elasticity of it, and it would, it would uh, afford the space for, for the fermentation process. Now, I know that looks gross, but that's why they would use it, and they would use something as big as a camel. So some of these wineskins, even, especially in ancient reliefs, show massive carts Dragging these huge camel skins full of wine around—disgusting in my mind. In fact, I've read that the wine then probably tasted more like saltwater grossness that had been sitting in the belly of a camel. (laughs) (laughs) And he uses this illustration. Uh, For some reason, he takes this and he says, "Man, this is this is what's going on here. I'm bringing new wine." Uh, The Greek word for new wine, I don't like Greek words a whole lot, but this one's funny, is glucose. And so I I realized, I said, so you're saying it's glucose intolerant. Okay, I got it. Sorry, that was a terrible, but true joke. He says, man, you can't put the new wine in the old wineskin. Why? It's already been stretched. It's already been set. It's already experienced its life in the transforming power, but it's no longer there. It has become petrified in its ways. It's become um, something that is no longer flexible, no longer good for use. And I thought about that. And what is he saying here? He's saying this, um, not comparing Judaism to Christianity. A lot of what I've read about this parable is comparing Judaism to Christianity. I don't think that that was the way it worked in the early church and the early disciples' minds. Christianity was not against judaism in fact it was the fulfillment of the promises made to abraham isaac jacob moses instead we're talking about this covenant and the hearts that are involved if i were to talk to you about what god has done in your life and and do what chuck had mentioned this morning and we were to sit and a lot of us have done this and i hope you're doing it in your small groups and say man what brought you into this intense walk with christ man i've seen tears We would talk about, this is what happened in my life. I would share with you stories that, you know, this is what God did back in the day. And and that's exciting and that's beautiful. But I guess the the question that he's giving to the Pharisees, because I believe fully that many of these guys in their early 20s, man, it hit them and they were excited and they fell in love and church was rocking. Everything was going good. But all of a sudden you just became it's about back then. It's about what God did. It's about a bunch of churches talking about how the glory days of their bus ministries. Every church I've ever gone to had the biggest bus ministry in the churches of Christ. I promise you that. The joy buses. It's about what God did back in the day. What God did. What I experienced. This is what it was. The question is, what is he doing? What is happening right now? What's happening within me? And so he uses this illustration of a cloth and of a wineskin. And he says this, man, I I need new wineskins. Now keep in mind the context of this parable. He's talking about the religious leaders of his time. And they're being contrasted with sinners. Tax collectors and sinners and people who are in this dark place. Now, how would you look at this and say, "This, these are my new wineskins? And in fact, it's crazy when you look through the Gospels with this theme in mind. Almost every parable, almost every story, I would say we're close to 75% deal with putting the... Out the old and coming in with this new. Those that were the tenants of the vineyard that were not responsible and so I'm turning to new tenants. Uh, the 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 builders rejected the this stone and it has become the chief cornerstone over here. Even something as throwing your net on the other side of the boat I think relates to this theme of we are now turning to a people who are hungry and thirsty to allow God to work in their lives. This is the major theme of the gospels themselves. So do you remember when? At what point does hollow devotion devolve into hollow routine? When does heartfelt sacrifice grow to become an empty ceremony? When do our faith and opinions become so petrified in our gospel? is about what God did then at another time when we were still flexible, pliable, elastic, and open to the direction, guidance, and power of the Holy Spirit within us. When does that transformation take place? For me, that has happened multiple times in my life. Multiple times. When I realize the passion that was there. Now you're comfortable. And you've got to renew that somehow. Psalm 51 says this, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart. God, you will not despise that. Isaiah 57, this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. I love what Paul said to the Galatian church. We're sitting with them and and all of a sudden their heart is going this, this direction. And he says this, what happened to your joy? Man, I can testify that if you could have done so back in the day, you would have taken out your eyes and given them to me. You would have done anything. What happened to that? What happened to that joy? What happened to that spirit? This is the message of Nicodemus. When Nicodemus comes in John 3 and he comes to Jesus at night, and he says, and Jesus looks at him and he says, Unless you're born again, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. You remember Nicodemus' response? How can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb? Now I grew up thinking. He really didn't understand what Jesus said. Thinking, "Wow, he doesn't know what it means to be born again." Until I found out that that was common language with the Pharisees. They knew that. That's old Old Testament language. He knew exactly what the phrase meant, I think. What he's asking is, how can a man who has been steeped in tradition all of his life, this is who I am, this is the person I've become, this is who I have come to be. I can't change my nature. How can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb? How do I start over? I think that's what Nicodemus is asking. How can you soften my heart and make me elastic again? How can you make me that way? It's amazing that Jesus said, when when the bridegroom is taken from you, then you will fast. 120 disciples are left that sat and heard these words. In Acts, they're sitting And waiting and fasting and praying for the Spirit to come. And do you remember what the people said about them when the Spirit was poured out on them? They're full of new wine. He uses the word glucose. They're full of new wine. Now I know that they responded. No, it's not like that. It's full of the Spirit. But some of them had to be thinking, Hmm. I don't know. By the Spirit, we're full of something new. God is doing something new in us and our people. Um, someone said to me this last week, and I've, I've heard it from a couple of people, uh, how much the, in a, the ladies' class has been meaning to them on Sunday mornings in, in hearing the power of testimony, hearing the power, and how much it's impacted their lives. And they said, you know what? I really just feel a spirit moving in some people here. And I believe that's so incredibly true. And I, my prayer as this go through this, this series on Next is, is what this will mean to you personally as far as moving forward. Saying, God, make me elastic. Make me pliable. By your Spirit, do something in me this year. But cause growth. It's a very difficult series for me to talk about because it's impossible to talk to the church as a whole about this is what's next because it's something vastly different for every single one of us. For some of you, what's next is to be baptized into Christ, is to make finally make a commitment in your life to say, I am going to give my life to Christ. This is what I was called to be and this is how I'm going to live. And I'm going to begin that journey here. In just a few minutes, Holden is going to be baptized into Christ. I'm going to celebrate that with him. For some of you, what that means is, God is going to teach me to forgive this year. And I'm going to really learn what it is to forgive. And for some of us, what this is going to mean is, I'm going to take these parables, like Lance challenged us in class this morning. And I'm going to take this out of the realm of the cerebral. And I'm going to take this into suds and grubs. I'm going to take this to the streets. I'm going to take this to a place where I want to live out what I am reading. And I want to get that experiential perspective of that. Whatever this is for you, last, last couple of weeks ago, we talked about anticipating God doing good things. This week, the challenge is this. Make room for it. Make sure that you're ready elastic, and ready to be what the new wine is going to cause you to be. Because every illustration he used of the kingdom, it's crazy. Seeds, um, um, yeast, um, a kingdom advancing, wine, all of these have something in common. They expand and they grow and they transform. This is how he presented his kingdom. And I pray that that's what it does in you this year. Uh, my God, I just want to come before you, and I, I lift up to you, Holden. And I just praise you. I see um, that zeal. And I pray, God, that um, not just your blessing on him this morning, on the beautiful commitment and faith step he's taking, but I pray for every single one of us that we would look at that and we would be reminded of maybe an earlier time in life. And that you would never allow our hearts to be set, hardened. Uh, But you would continue to move and work and grow in us. And that we would never become useless uh, to what you are doing. We are sinners. And I praise you that you've chosen our company. And I pray, God, that your church would be recognized for doing the same today. For walking in this world in humility. Um, for honoring the weakest and the mo- and the hurting. And I pray, God, I pray that we will not allow our religion to be locked up in a building of the intellectually elite, because obviously we're not that. Um, I praise you, for, Father, for this message, and I ask, God, that outside of the public level, on a very private level, that your spirit would um, cause this message um, to do something very powerful in individual lives here this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.